I am Natasha Ryan with The North Group, and it is indeed Time to Head North, our podcast. I'm so delighted to have my friend on the podcast, Laura Hoffner from Concentric, Executive Vice President, and I like to think we're kind of counterparts in the business, you know, BD, communications, Um, but her background is a bit different. I came from the news business, Laura. Why don't you tell them what you did? (laughs) So I'm coming from the military background. So I joined the Navy right out of college as a Naval Intelligence Officer and spent 12 years active, two years inactive as an intelligence officer, mostly for special operations around the world. And might I say, Laura is one of my most badass female (laughs) friends. I'm always impressed with you. Um, But we also are members of Chief which Mm -hmm. is a, I like to think of it as like a women empowering women type networking group for executives and management. And, and it really focuses on something we want to do here today. It focuses on really leading a charge, leading change, pushing towards evolving people, employees, yourself, the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, we want to have a conversation that Laura candidly said on her LinkedIn page. I'm shy about even posting this because it's such a non-PC thing to discuss, but I want to pull this up. It's a study Laura found, and and you can kind of talk a little bit about what, who did it and and what it is, but it's about the effects on intelligence agents, essentially. Exactly. It's specifically addressing the trauma. And so to your original point with Chief, I think one of the main things that we can really do as leaders is acknowledge things that have thus far been unacknowledged or have not been addressed. And so this is what falls into that category for me. So the title of the article from Rand is The Trauma Within the Intelligence Community. And it goes into extensive research, interviewing across the various communities within the intelligence community about how people have addressed, experienced, and are still living through the trauma that they had from their time in. And I want to kind of read part of this article because those of you who are listening, you know, that maybe don't understand what the intelligence community does other than what you see in the movies and, and espionage and, and all of that stuff. Um, you know, the IC workforce, uh, they're tasked and this is per the paper, you know, with collecting and protecting our nation's secrets. Okay. Now this function requires them to keep their personal and their professional lives very, very separate. And mm-hmm. we're talking about violent, difficult problems. You know, they have to work under horrible conditions, very stressful. And when you're trying to get There is no clocking in and clocking out with this job. You know, you could be talking about long hours, shift work, work without pay, and even work, as you know, Laura, that takes you to a war zone. Mm -hmm. So just the fact, I, you know, obviously Laura has classified information. So if she doesn't offer personal stories, that's why she's not, not wanting to share. She just can't. And so I want you to talk um, without specifics, just about, How hard that must be to see things and be involved in those situations and then not be able to talk to anyone about it. Yeah. 
I would actually flip it on its head from the very beginning. So yes to everything that you said, but really what it is is an incredible opportunity to be involved in things that are really mattering around matter around the world. Um, uh -huh. So yes, that brings you to absurd locations. It gives you crazy hours, but I think the vast majority of people with the IC will genuinely say that it is their honor to be involved in these types of situations and missions. Um, and so it's something that we full-heartedly motivate ourselves in order to do and are glad to be a part of it. But I think that that inherently does come with access to disturbing information, um, watching things go down that you were not prepared for or being a part of things that you just didn't see coming. And that's okay. What I think is one of the most important things that this article illuminates is just because you've had a traumatic response to something that you've had occur within your career doesn't mean you can't hack it within the field it doesn't mean you're any less of an analyst not broken right you're not broken and it's a very normal thing and we should address it provide people the resources for it and make the community better as a result of it when you think about some of the more stressful or just things you wish you didn't have to see or go through mm -hmm. how do you personally cope with that uh with getting past the past, essentially. Yeah. It's a learning process. I don't think I've had it all figured out yet. Um, but I think when you've done so many years and so many missions of quite genuinely life and death situations, um, it's not always all going to be positive. But what I will always be proud of, and this article illuminates the positives of going through these as well, um, these are the missions that I will be remembering on my deathbed and will forever be proud that I got to be a part of it. Um, and so there's a balance there. There's just has to be an acknowledgement that with those really hard situations come the really proud moments that you'll never give up. But Laura, how do you do that? How do you spin that? And how do you make something positive out mm -hmm. of something horrific at times? I think it's a matter of that resilience that the military teaches you and I and continuing in this job set you inherently have to have. And so if it's a matter of while you're on your sixth deployment to Afghanistan and you just need to find the positive in that day, the fact that it's raining for the first time in four days or four months, that's positive enough and you just need to focus on that. Um, and that inherently becomes a life philosophy of trying to find the positives. Um, I've had a, a boss at this current company who kind of teases me that I always switch things to find that silver lining. You do. I know you do. You always do it. I love you for it, but you always do it. Yes. I do. I um, and it's not necessarily a good thing. It, sometimes you just need to acknowledge the bad, but that has been my own survival mechanism in order to force myself and in hopes for others to see that positive. My question is kind of what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's great to spin the positive. It's great to to find the positive message. But it's a fine line, right, of not burying the memories and then you're suppressing and they manifest later on in some other way. So, I mean, what advice would you give someone coming home from from a mission that had a had an impact on their mental health? Who? That's another thing I haven't quite figured out yet, but from my own experience, I think that there's a natural cadence of when you're not okay. 
Um, and there are very normal coping mechanisms that you do. And so there's the typical when you're coming home, you drive a little bit more defensively, you're sticking yourself in the corner so you can see the room, like all of those things that people stereotypically associate with military and unfortunately have also been stereotypically associated with broken people. That's a normal cadence for you to go through when you're coming back from these combat life and death situations and giving yourself that grace to recover from that in a very normal way. Going to Afghanistan and having these types of missions and being exposed to the problem set is not a normal thing. And so coming back and expecting to be exactly as you were when you left, that's just not going to happen. And that's okay. I want to, before I ask this question, I genuinely don't know it. And I'm not trying to sound like, oh, do they offer that if they don't? Because I'm a military brat. So thank you for your service. I grew up living on all sorts of bases, nine different schools. My dad flew fighters in the Air Force. We lived overseas. I, you know, it's something I've never asked my dad, but my dad is very much old school. Like, you don't need to talk about everything. Of course. Doesn't believe in therapy. And so my question is now, as we try to evolve this mindset to therapy really isn't bad for anybody, Mm -hmm. are there resources yet available? Did you get offered resources? Are there therapists that are allowed to discuss the classified stuff with you? Those were a lot of questions, all require different answers. So the resources are getting there. We're gradually um, increasing the access that service members have, especially when they're coming back from these war zones. Um, Unfortunately, I think it's a typical matter of good intent and poor execution. So for instance, when we're coming back, we have to go through a third location decompression. And in that you're required to meet with a psychologist. And that psychologist is your door to officially being done with deployment. You can go out with your buddies. You can go have a beer for the first time in X amount of months. And so that gatekeeper operation does not enable genuine interaction with that psychologist. So you're just saying, yep, I'm fine. I'm fine. I've never thought of suicide. I don't have any nightmares. Good to go. Carry on. Um, And that's it. So yes, the resource is there. However, is it being utilized or, um, actually being recommended in a way that would be beneficial to the service member? No, unfortunately. And when you're in the IC, unfortunately, the um, security clearance is a massive issue. We do not have psychologists that are normally cleared to the TSSCI level. And even if they are, there's the whole need to know. And so just because you may have the same security clearance as me, you may not need to know all of the things that I've been through. And so thus, I can't share it. So there's always going to be that issue for it. Um, I kind of went around that in my own career by finding um, therapists and psychologists that were either outside of the military. So I was paying on my own dime or were willing to go off the books. So there was no record of it anywhere with a medical record. Um, which is unfortunate that I had to do that. And then it kind of came back to bite me when I was going through my VA claim, because they were like, well, you've never seen a therapist on any of these issues. So clearly, there's nothing of concern there. And it's like, well, I had to hide it from you in order to do it. So (laughs) it was kind of a two two edged sword on that. So we're getting better for sure. But there still needs to be that um, just general understanding that it's going to be okay. You're not going to lose your security clearance by doing it. Um, and then I think leaders really need to speak up and say that they're going in order to deal with X, Y, and Z and 
providing that space within the organization to, for them to see that it's okay. And they are still maintaining their clearance. They're still maintaining their position. They're a respected member within the organization. Because to your dad's point, there's very much the, if you need therapy, then you're broken and you shouldn't be here. And that's not the case. Trauma is a word that's being used a lot these days, especially in this new generation. Um, and I'm so thankful that they are destigmatizing the word. But I think what we're having is a profound visceral reaction to overusing the word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just want to say that it's not invalidating the experiences of people who have gone through very traumatic situations. There's not a limit on the amount of trauma that can be experienced in this world. And also one instance does not make a traumatic response. Um, there's that analogy of boiling the frog in water by gradually upping the uh, temperature. And I think that's what you really see in the IC is that it's very rarely one instance of a traumatic event. It is the buildup over decades of a career that ultimately bring you to have some of these PTSD responses to what has occurred. Um, but it's not all a bad thing. The article itself brings out some very positive things that come from having gone through these very shitty situations, excuse the word. Um, you can say shitty, it's fine. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, but it causes it that post-traumatic growth and that compassion satisfaction, which means that you went and you did the hard things and you worked your ass off and you never lost that empathy or that humanization within war that is so easily lost. And that's certainly something to be proud of. I'm so glad you brought this up because I actually forgot to discuss this. You know, in that article, they talk about trauma is not just trauma. It's not mm -hmm. just a blanket term there. I learned this. There's direct trauma, secondary trauma, and then there's trauma, just trauma from just being like seeing and being a slight part of just a morally like hurtful event. Right. And, and this isn't, yeah. And this isn't just, um, this just, this isn't just military. I mean, you know, it's funny. They mentioned journalists in here and mm -hmm. again, I, and it, and it can affect you. It can affect you sleeping. It can mm -hmm. affect how you concentrate. It can exaggerate your negative beliefs and it can decrease like wanting to be more detached from other people kind of all of these like effects that are really not healthy for any human. So right. trauma comes in all different sizes, shapes, forms, and affects people differently. Um, the thing that, you know, I know is a, and I, and I go back to what I know, right? Like certainly as an, as an intelligence analyst, you had it way worse. I'm not trying to compare. Not a competition. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I do, I always felt like I walked away from the news kind of um, with some baggage. I mean, you, you know, especially early on uh, when, when things weren't locked down so tight and you could have relationships with law enforcement mm -hmm. and they, you know, I would often arrive on a scene and the, the law enforcement officer felt like a journalist with someone they could talk openly with, you know, if they knew you. And so sometimes I would get horrific details that I didn't want, mm -hmm. you know, that I couldn't really report, but they were either in the report I had to comb through or, you know, it was a shared conversation where I felt empathy for these people, the first responders. And 
you want to be a sounding board. But I mean, that that in itself, not even witnessing the act, but just the aftermath and reading through it, it can be very traumatic. Right. And, and, and some of the with you. Yeah. So some of these, as I'm sure you go through this, like I, I have a hard time sometimes with some of the like ID network shows and, you know, like some of them are very triggering to cases that I covered and bodies I saw. And, and, mm-hmm. and it just, you know, I, how do you navigate those triggers in everyday life? How do you move past those triggering like moments? Yeah. I don't have that figured out yet. I wish I did. Um, it would be so easy to, be like, well, I'm not doing that specific work anymore. For instance, I had to do a project on um, the beheading tactics, techniques, and procedures of ISIS. Um, and so I must have watched dozens of beheading videos. Um, and that's, you know, it was just a Tuesday of trying to figure out if we could identify any kind of pattern of where they were, what they were wearing, if there's anything that we could do to prevent it from happening in the future. Um, but that exposure sticks with you. That's not something that people see on a regular basis. Um, But it's not like I am going to have myself exposed to that in the future. But I don't know what is going to be the trigger that can bring me right back to that or just have me have a an unexpected reaction to it. Um, You can't unsee it. That's the problem. it makes you better that you don't let it go. I think I've gone into this uh, debate with a couple of other people from the IC that I think no one should come back from those experiences whole. I think you need to really commit yourself and all that you're trying to do over there and you leave a part of yourself over there with it. Um, And that's okay. I think that that is a very understandable and Um, admirable thing because it means you fully committed. My career specifically focused on a lot of hostage rescue. um, And so that inherently brings the trauma of seeing either a fellow American or just a human being being captured and then understanding their case so closely that you know exactly what's happening to them. You know when their bathroom breaks are, you're watching them um, have negative experiences while in captivity, whether that be beating, starving, et cetera. And you just know that case better than anyone. And then you also know their family, what their family is going through, their kids. You're in all of those interviews. You're talking to the source network to see what access they may have. And so when you have that human element and you're just watching all of this negative experiences happening to them, um, that inherently, I think, is traumatizing. But it's also something that I absolutely loved being a part of with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, although I can't speak specifically to Iraq. It's a lot of um, whack-a-mole in regards to you're trying to find the bad guys. And unfortunately, the bad guys will always fill in wherever someone left. Um, But when it comes to hostage rescue, you're using a lot of those skills and those techniques to bring the good guys home. And so it's inherently more satisfying, but it's very much more humanizing. How hard was it for you to step out of something where you are in a situation of, I don't want to say enthralled, 
Mm. but you're so in it. And what you did was kind of adrenaline based sometimes. Yeah. How hard is it to then we always talk about this in private security. How hard is it to then transition into everyday society where you're not doing those things anymore? Yeah. Networking happy hour with me. (laughs) Right. Like how hard is it? Um, I don't think that it is hard. It's just very different. Um, the skills that make you a very good analyst and that focus and that, um, lack of work-life boundary is not the same skill set that's going to make you a good leader in the civilian world. Um, Unfortunately, in the military and especially in the special operations community, there is no balance. You are work first, mission first. Uh, We have a long way to go until that's an acceptable balance for the leaders to have. Um, But on the outside, they've really figured it out. And so it takes a retraining that you're not selfish for having that work-life balance, for enjoying your weekends, for not constantly being on call and answering emails immediately. Um, there's that step down in the selfishness aspect of it that I think was the hardest part for me, at least. I would imagine that would be hard. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was not in the military, but I was in the news business and it was kind of the same thing, especially early on. You know, you get a phone call at three in the morning, you go in, you know, right. right. especially in those smaller markets where you're it, right? You're the bureau reporter. So if something happens, it's on you. You get calls at all hours and there you right. go. So Stepping into a different, yeah, role. It's like, oh, wait, I actually get a weekend off. (laughs) Exactly. And I think in that prior community for you as well, there's always more that you could be reading, doing, exposing yourself to in order to make you better at your job. And in the intelligence community right now, we don't have an issue with influx of information. It's just a matter of how much one person can uh, read and digest and analyze all of that at once. And so there's always that nagging feeling in the back of your mind. Did I miss an email? Did I miss a report that could quite literally have an impact on the life and death on the ground, either friendly or foe, um, but it's on me to not miss that. And so there's that like constant... Uh, cloud of am I doing it enough at any given moment? What was it like being um, a female in the world? <laughs> uh, who? How do I sum that up? <laughs> <laughs> it was unique. Um, my first time heading into that environment, I had a leader pull me aside to say that I was getting ready to deploy with guys who never hear the word no. And so to prepare myself for that. And so it was this foreboding, what am I getting myself into in order to do my job well? It was not nearly like that. Um, I certainly had instances of sexual harassment, sexual assault um, that I hope the follow on generations will not have from the exposure of more women within special operations. But that was a very conscious choice that I had to make. Was I going to be um, a whistleblower of that activity within special operations? Or was I going to be a leader that could hopefully do her job well? Um, 
and be respected. Um, and so I'm not sure if I succeeded the latter, but I had to make that choice. If you're a whistleblower, you're just going to get kicked out of the community very quick. You're not going to be seen as a team player or a trustworthy asset. And so it's very much an either or. And again, I'm just hoping the follow on generations don't have to make that choice. Do you see the same kind of thing in the private sector? Because a lot of the guys we work with are former special forces. Mm -hmm. Do you think, um, I mean, do we have as long of a road to go in the private security sector as we do with what you went through in the military? Not even close. Not to belittle what progress we still have to make in the private sector, um, but it is light years ahead of where we are within the military special operations field um, in regards to understanding that women are inherently needed and a part of the organization and that they bring talent and um, intelligence into the field. That is not ever a question within the security industry, at least it hasn't been my experience. Whereas yeah. every single day I felt like I needed to prove that at the teams. Hmm. How do we, well, not we, how does the military recruit women in when they hear things like that? I mean, how did they get more women to say yes to entering into that? I think the women that want to join aren't going to be deterred by it. Um, when I was going through, there was that massive investigation going on at the Air Force Academy for sexual assault. Um, and it was a very ignorant and naive optic, but it was like, that's just not going to happen to me. Um, unfortunately, it did, but I still wouldn't change it. And it was an unfortunate aspect of the job that um, I just had to deal with in order to do what I was ultimately there to do. Years later, does anyone that, uh, that had those negative interactions as they maybe get enlightened later in life, has anyone made amends? Yeah, actually, especially in these last few years, I've had people reach out just to apologize how they acted or um, things that they said, things that they did. And ultimately, it's kind of a selfish act because they want me to forgive them for what had happened so long ago. Um, but at this point, it's no skin off my back to let them think that they're forgiven. <laughs> how do you think moving into private security, how, how do you think we as female executives should get the word out that there is space in our industry for women? And how do we recruit more on this side of it? Yeah. Being a presence within the industry is going to be really important. For instance, you mediating at CPC, um, which I went to my first CPC conference. That's the Closed Protection Conference, for those who don't know, last December. Um, and it's, what would you say, 96% male? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we count the females maybe on two hands. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so we clearly have work to do in this space. Um, but being a presence within that and specifically being a leader within that industry, I think that inherently shows that we're on the up and up. We've got room for improvement. But what I think we're still lacking is there's probably more women in the leadership roles than there are in the op actual operational roles. So we don't have those security agents that are coming in yet. So 
I think we really need to focus on that because that's how we've got the leaders of the future as well. Yeah. And I mean, think of how many times you've had requests for female EP agents. Right. Well, let, let me let me say this. I you know, I'm asking all these tough questions, but I think Lauren and I have both uh, found this to be true as well. I will say I have found strong allies in men wanting to be inclusive of women, wanting to bring more. Uh, female leadership into the security sector. You know, um, mm -hmm. of course, my boss, your boss, Eric, absolutely reached out before I had even met him in person and said, Hey, I love what you're doing. I love seeing women in leadership roles. Can I help you? How can I help you? Love that. Love it. And, yeah. and allies like that are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, to them, thank you. Right. Right. And, you know, I, what? I don't think it needs to be that purposeful. Eric is a fantastic example of um, a leader that's making that space. But I also think that just inherently our bosses at Concentric are just open and willing to um, give the responsibility and the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise, regardless of gender, which is a very unique leadership position um, that I think really uh, Concentric excels at by giving people that opportunity to succeed and then encouraging them when they do. So it doesn't need to be like, how can it, what can I do to help you? That's not what we're asking for. It's just a matter of giving us the opportunity. And I think you find, I always say this, this, the reason I love this space is you find a lot of guys and gals with an altruistic sense about them. They just want mm -hmm. to make the world a better place. And yeah. I can echo that, you know, with the North group, right? Like mm -hmm. Steve and I talk about pro bono stuff all the time. What do we want to do next? Like what, where can we focus our efforts where we are improving the state of the world? Right. And everyone in our company has that spirit about them, you know? So mm -hmm. I really, I enjoy that in the space a lot. I, well, you know, that brings that kind of personality to the space. People want to make people safe. Um, mm -hmm. And we can do that in a variety of ways, whether you can pay or not pay. Similarly, we've started our nonprofit, the 188 Foundation, to get people out of combat zones. Yeah, so we assisted with getting people out of Afghanistan and Ukraine, and we're continuing in that space to just provide the security for people who are trying to do great things for this world and shouldn't be made more vulnerable as a result of it. And how did that idea uh, get born. Talk a little bit about this. I, I love this nonprofit you guys started. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan. Um, so when Afghanistan fell in August of 2021, it was definitely personal for a lot of us in the space. Um, and so we were being reached out to by various organizations, various interpreters to see if there's anything that we may be able to do to help. And so we had a very specific contact reach out to us about reporters that needed to be um, exfiltrated from Afghanistan safely. And so the list just kept growing. And so we made contact with various other organizations that were similarly trying to get people out and ended up chartering one of the last civilian flights out of Afghanistan before the Taliban fell. Um, and it was out of Mazar Sharif in the north, which was inherently unique because most people were going out of Kabul while they could. Um, and so we just found a safer option and a less um, vulnerable option from Mazar Sharif. And then the flight ended up going to Mexico. So we call it the 188 Foundation because that's how many were originally manifested to be on that flight. Um, it ended up being 362, um, which was 
a bit of a dramatic result in <laughs> from what we had planned. Um, but ultimately, there should not have been a spare seat on that flight. We should have packed it as much as possible um, and gotten out as many people as we could. So that's what we did in Afghanistan. And shortly after, we founded the foundation uh, because we knew that there was always going to be the need. And so we had the capability and we wanted to provide that solution. And so quickly in March, we were able to do it again in Ukraine with about 65 unique operations, um, enabling the rescue of anyone from a seven-day-old baby in uh, Kiev to a 93-year-old blind woman that we were able to get out of the country. And how do you decide who to help? Ultimately, it's can we help them? The feasibility assessment is our first um, point of triage. And so it depends on where they are, what kind of access um, they have around them, what their unique medical situation is, and then also where they're going. Do, we don't want to rescue someone and then just enable their problems down the road. So what country specifically for Ukraine are we bringing them to and do they have follow on care there? Um, and so we understand that we are a very specific and short part of this rescue operation. There's a long before and there's going to be an even longer after. And so we want to be good partners in that space and make sure that we are enabling their continued rescue rather than just bringing them to the border and dropping them off. So as long as we can feasibly access them, that's really the, the issue. It's so important to think about what next once you have them too. I'm glad that that's, you know, that's all in your wheelhouse. Um, you know, I'm sitting here watching you and I'm thinking, man, she would make an excellent political candidate. Have you ever thought about running? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, Seattle, Laura. <laughs> I know. it's the flavor du jour of uh, post-military people to be considering it. So it's something I'm definitely considering in the future, but I've got a couple other things that I want to do before we consider that one. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and volunteer to be your campaign manager. So okay, if you need help. <laughs> Hey, Laura, I just want to thank you for your time. Such an interesting conversation. You and I gab for hours, so this could go on and on. But um, out of respect for your time and everyone listening, just thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about Laura and Concentric's uh, nonprofit, please get in touch with her. How do they do that? They can go on our website, concentric.io. Um, and we've got all of our contact information on there for either the 188 Foundation or Concentric. Perfect. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or you can watch on our website and find more episodes like this one, tngdefense.com. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, everyone. And we will see you soon. Thank you.